Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Good morning. Well, we've been in Ruth, as you know. Most of you know, if you're new here, you're behind, but we're right at the end of Ruth. This is it. This is the last time. So I'm glad you made it. If you didn't make it, you're, hopefully you're online and catching the last, the last section of, of the book of Ruth. Last time, we, um, we kind of finished that drawn-out drama of what happened between Boaz and Ruth, what happened to Naomi, the line of her family that we've been following pretty much the whole, the whole of the story, we saw Boaz continue to act out of the character of unselfishness, showing chesed toward his family, toward the people around him, faithfulness, even at a risk to his, to his own inheritance. We see Boaz with great faith in God. If you remember that, only God, only Yahweh can produce children, can bring forth a child, an heir, and that is what he trusted God for. So then we watched him with this odd tradition of giving the sandal, receiving the other man's sandal. Boaz declares that it is done. He will redeem, he will buy back the land, and Naomi will take, or excuse me, and Naomi, and he will take Ruth as his wife, Ruth the foreigner. Well, the people there at the gate gave a blessing to Boaz. You remember that? They gave a prayer, a hope, kind of threefold. First, that Ruth would indeed bear a child. Second, that Boaz and his family would be honorable in the, in, and known in their town. And then third, that the family would become large and powerful, even as their ancestor Judah was. Last week, we took some time and we looked at the emphasis in the whole of the book on blessings. There's about seven different times, if I counted correctly, that someone blesses someone else. Now, we also looked at how we might, first of all, how we might bless the Lord, praise Him, how we might honor Him. That's something that as Christians we should be about. Bless the Lord, O my soul, says the psalmist. And then second, we should bless those who are around us, particularly perhaps those in our charge, our children, our grandchildren, maybe others. Giving a blessing can be done with our lives, the way we live, living Christianly, if you will. Well, giving a blessing can also be done with our speech. The way that we speak to one another can be a proclamation, even a prayer. What we're doing as we bless is invoking 
God, petitioning him for his favor upon someone. I don't think there's magic involved. I don't think there's prophecy. But we're asking God for his attention and his care upon this life. So I, I hope you've been able to ponder that, continue to ponder it. How does that look? How might that look for you in your particular circles? Well, as I said, we find ourselves now at the end of the book. Act 4, which happens to be chapter 4 of the drama of Ruth. And then we're going to see a kind of a tacked on um, finish with the genealogy. Let's ask God to meet us as we study this portion of Ruth together. So God, thank you that you are here, that you do meet us in your mercy, you care for us, and you love us. And I'm just grateful for this study in the book of Ruth that we will wrap up today. And even as we come to this section, please let us see a little bit of who you are, looking at you as the sovereign God, always there, always active, always faithful. You're the one who designed chesed. You're the one who shows loyalty and covenant. Thank you for these, these words preserved for us now. I pray, God, that we would be convicted by your truth and encouraged by your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope your Bible is open there to the end of, of Ruth. Um, we notice as we begin this section that over nine months has passed since last week, believe it or not. And the author now wants to fill us in, reveal to us what has happened during those nine months and how then the story ends. So we find out first that Boaz, true to his word and his commitments, he took Ruth as his wife. He probably took her to his home. She became his wife. The author there, he, he is emphasizing this fact for us. Um, if you remember, we've been kind of following Ruth's social status in the land of Israel. She starts out as a foreigner. That's almost a nothing, almost a worthlessness. And then she moves to a maidservant at some point, and then she's classified as what's a hand servant, perhaps. It's, a, it's an improvement. And then finally, she's a wife. That's a great improvement um, for a, an Israelite woman. Remember Naomi in chapter 1? She hoped, she prayed that these daughter-in-laws of hers would find rest, find security in the, hope, or in the home of another husband after the death of her sons. Well, to be a wife, to be the wife of not a dead man, but a alive, a living man, that was a high status for an Israelite woman in that society. Probably the goal of most girls in that day. It gave security, it gave provision, it gave a future. Ruth was now accepted as a Jewish wife. Not only that, but the wife of Honorable Boaz. Well, you see there, they consummated the marriage, and Yahweh granted conception, and she gave birth to a son. Now, we've not been told that Ruth was barren, that she was unable to conceive, but think about it. This was the story with quite a number in the history of Israel. Think of Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, and others, all who struggled with barrenness, but we should note that Ruth had already been married for 10 years to Malon, at least 10 years, with no offspring. So 
we need to recognize, as they did and we do today, but God is the only one who brings life, who opens the womb, who gives children. For those in Israel to bear children was a great blessing from God. That comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Favor from God to carry on their name, their family lineage, their honor, and as we looked at, their connection to their God-given land. The prayer that the people offered in the gate, remember that in chapter 4 verse 11, the people offered a prayer or a blessing to Boaz, that's being answered right now. Nine months later or some number of months later beyond that, God gave Boaz and Ruth a son. But it doesn't stop there. Check, check out verse 14. We catch up with the women of the town as they turn to Naomi now. We're, we're let in on what they say to her. Keep in mind, compare Naomi a few chapters a few months earlier you remember her upset, even bitter in the, at the end of chapter 1. So are these the same women then that heard Naomi's bitter cries at that moment as she returned to Bethlehem? Well, they now turn to her and say, bless the Lord, praise Yahweh. Why do they say that? Well, we know from the beginning, the opening line, God has given you a family redeemer today. Against all odds, he has brought someone to save you and your family from near extinction. Still in verse 14, the women of the town express a hope in faith, I think, that God or that this child's name will become great in Israel. So as the people of the gate cheer for Boaz to be known in the town, so the women here are cheering for this baby to be great in the land. So the existence of this baby, according to the women, look at verse 15. They say the existence of this baby will cause your life to return, Naomi, will renew your spirit, refresh your soul, is basically what they're after. And in addition, this child will sustain you in your old age. He will be the one to provide for you, to care for you, and of course to carry on that family name. So you, we talked a lot about Boaz being the one to be the redeemer. He began that process, but soon it will pass to his son. So Obed would become the legal owner of the property and the redeemer, the one to care for Naomi if she were still alive. The point here is mercifully, God has filled Naomi. Remember the emptying of Naomi. famine she lost her home and then she lost all her family her husband and both sons she really was very emptied but now at the end of the story God's mercy is evident so didn't he know the end of the story all along he has filled her she not only has food but she has hope of her family's preservation and hope of provision and care for her in her old age. And as you mothers and grandmothers in specific know that she has a baby to love and to bring her immense joy. Well, the women go on and, and look at the latter part of verse 15. They, they shift gears a little bit. And I think that we're supposed to notice that Ruth must have stood out. 
and we've, we've seen this somewhat already, but even though the culture has moved away from God's ideals, right, in, in so many ways, they are not living according to, to the law of God, and even though they're really not keen on Moabites, they see her extraordinary kindness, her godliness, her faithfulness to Naomi. It's very evident. The women of their town of, of the town then turn their attention to Naomi's daughter-in-law. They don't name her, but they point out her love, her devotion, and her preference given to Naomi. You know, in, in Leviticus 19, God tells the Israelites this. He says, you will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. It seems to me almost that Ruth has demonstrated that principle in reverse to the Israelites, loving her neighbor, loving Naomi in specific as herself, regarding her as herself. And it's, it's based upon that, upon her, her devotion that we saw starting in chapter 1 and all, all the way through, that the women declare that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons. Now that's quite a statement. A family with seven sons would have been considered a very fortunate, a very blessed family in this particular culture. If one had seven sons, there's a great chance that you would be cared for in your old age and your name would carry on, your property would stay in the family and all of this, even defense, defense of the family in the case of, of war or something. But Ruth has proved even better. As I looked at this, I, I, I was thinking now, especially in this culture where sons, boys are so desired, you would have thought these women would have been so distracted by this baby, this God-given heir, the Redeemer, that they wouldn't have even thought much of Ruth. But that's not the case. Even in that culture, with that perspective, the women cannot overlook the value of daughter Ruth. Not just to produce an heir, that's not why they're pointing her out, but who she is, her character, and her love and devotion. Now, maybe there's a little hyperbole in that seven sons statement, but I think what's really happening here, there's, there's quite a few words spent on this incredible statement that affirms Ruth's character. So as we come to verse 16, now with the backdrop of the story, as we've, as we've looked at it, Naomi's emptying, God's filling, you now have a tender moment. Naomi holds the child, she's pleased, she's blessed. She enters into, I think, a close relationship with that little boy. Even though, think about it, they don't share any natural blood. I think as we look at that, there's, there's different translations and thoughts on that, but I think that we should understand she became sort of maybe a foster mother, you could say, or a, a godmother, definitely a grandmother, maybe a doting grandmother. But if you look at verse 17, the neighbor women declare, what do they say there? A son has been born to Naomi. The New Living Translation says, at last Naomi has a son again. Two things about that. Technically, this was not Naomi's son. But he took the place of her dead sons. He would preserve her line and bring life and joy back to her but this, this little boy, Obed, did not cease to be Boaz and Naomi's, or excuse me, Ruth's son. 
I think one can imagine that Naomi lived very near, if not in the same dwelling as Ruth and Boaz, and she would have been a great part of that little boy's raising. Second thing about this, notice the emphasis on Naomi. It's not on Elimelech or on Malon, the, the, the owners of the land, his, or her, her family, the men in the family. The discussion here, the women's remarks are directed toward Naomi. Again, not the men in the preservation of the family line, but they're personal. They're connected to the woman, to Naomi. Well, finally, we find out the name of this little boy, Obed. And the author has a very surprising end for the initial reader. If you'd never read this before, especially if you were an Israelite, look at verse, in verse 17, all of a sudden, we see the family tree that Obed belongs to. Undoubtedly, the reader the first time the reader read this or heard it read was very aware of King David. Probably highly regarded King David. And as we discussed a few weeks ago now, remember this book was probably written after King, almost for sure after King David and maybe well after King David, but King David stood out. He still stands out. And all of a sudden the reader realizes that this little guy is in the line of King David, his grandfather, no less. There's a good chance that Obed had a personal influence on a young David. So the author throws that surprising twist in for the reader. Yes, Naomi was filled. Yes, God provided an heir. Yes, Ruth and Boaz were exalted as righteous individuals, but Yahweh was up to something even bigger longer lasting, eternally significant. The silent sovereign is at work. Now, I don't, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the genealogy at the end there, but it is here to stand, in a sense, for the reason, as the reason for this narrative, for the story that we've just been working through. It sort of climaxes the story. It places it in history especially for those much more aware of that particular history. It looks forward, it looks back. And it's not just a random history or timeline or a good way to finish the book. It culminates in none other than King David, as we've seen, the founder, really, of the Israelite dynasty. So you see there are 10 names, 10 individual names in verses 18 through 22. They reach back to Perez. That would have been the son of Judah who was the son of Jacob, the, the founder of Israel, if you will. Twelve tribes came from him. The ten names complete a linear genealogy, which is normally used for legitimizing the heritage of someone. But, but listen, to, check this out. The genealogy here covers about 800 years of history. So unless these families lived a long, long time and had very blessed lives, there's some generations that have been skipped. And that's, that's common. That's not, not um, accidental. But what the purpose is, it, it provides a formal list to legitimize the line of David. And then, of course, to show how Boaz and Obed and Ruth fit into that. But I think one of the things we're to notice as we reflect 
on this genealogy and the story, God was preserving the line of his people through the unfaithfulness of most of them. And then he was rewarding and he was showing chesed to the faithful, particularly Boaz and Ruth. So it wasn't big armies. It wasn't heroic kings. It wasn't physical advantage, human power, something along these lines, human wisdom that led to David's dynasty or the Messiah eventually. But it was God at work through the faithful, rewarding those who humbly clung to him. Their loyal conduct, through their loyal conduct, now they had no idea, but God was preserving his people that would eventually bear the royal seed. The author knew, the author knew, and now he's letting the reader know too. But it goes farther than the author knew, right? We now know God was preserving that line that would produce the humble Messiah. The providential hand of God, the silent sovereign, is at work. I think in the book of Ruth, it's only twice that God, you see God directly intervene or directly do something. In Chapter 1, verse 6, Naomi returns to the land, you remember, because she heard what? Yahweh provided food. And the second one is the one we looked at today, verse 13 of chapter 4, the Lord granted conception to Ruth. I think those are the only two where you see God directly. It's a little bit similar to the other Old Testament book by, the, by a woman's name, Esther, if I'm not mistaken. God's name is never mentioned in that book. Does this mean that God was absent? He was far away for some reason during these particular stories. Maybe he was nearer or more involved in other stories in the Old Testament or even today. What about foreign lands? Maybe he doesn't, maybe it's not as much a part of his plan. I don't think so. In fact, I think the perceived absence of God is purposeful in order that we might see his very real involvement. His silent sovereignty is constantly at work. His silent sovereignty is constantly at work. I want to make, about, I, I want to make four, four different points concerning God and his silent sovereignty when I was young, well, I, I've always loved things that go, things with wheels, motors, engines, things that fly, like some of you. But when I was young, I really wanted a remote control car. You know, eventually, I, require, I acquired one. And by the way, I don't know what happened to that. If any of you know what happened to that, I'll, I kind of I would like it back. I probably wrecked it, but... Um, you know how those work, though. The operator has the, the remote control. He stands over here, and the car zooms about. It's the same idea, right, with a remote-controlled airplane or a drone. or um, Now they have um, military equipment, construction equipment that are remotely controlled, and probably a lot of other things. Now, if you were unaccustomed to remote-controlled vehicles or equipment, 
you would wonder, how in the world is that little car moving? There's no one in the driver's seat. But there is someone in the driver's seat. In fact, in the case of God, through faith, for those of us that are looking, God looms large with the remote in his hands. And we want to trust him. We want to trust him. We want to have faith in the silent sovereign. Here's a basic definition of sovereignty. We want to trust that God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. The remote is in his hands, and his control is what we want. I was talking to someone once, and they wanted to see God. They expressed to me they wanted to see God do something great to intervene in our world in some obvious manner. That would, that would help their faith. That would give them reason to believe. Well, God could do that. But I'm not sure that that is the norm. That is not the normal way God tends to work. However, this doesn't mean that God is absent or that he's backed off somewhere. It doesn't mean that he has less control or he's unattached Maybe he's taken a vacation for a few hundred years. I think we'd be unbiblical to think that way. Now, some of you have a carbon monoxide detector in your home. What's carbon monoxide? It's caused, as I understand it, by an incomplete combustion of fuels. And if you're not in a well-ventilated area and you breathe a bunch of that stuff, it can kill you. Well, what is the problem? You can't see it. You can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, but it's there. Well, of course, God may, may be silent, but he's there. The silent sovereignty of God as seen in Ruth. I think we live in a similar reality. The remote control is still in his grasp. The batteries are not dead, but by faith, we want to trust the silent sovereignty of God. He's working, he's alive, he's powerful, and he is in control. Well, the second point is, as we firmly hold to him, as we trust in that, I don't think we need to see anything remarkable or anything magical or experience something. After all, what is faith? We see that in Hebrews 11. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are not seen. But as we do this, I believe that we will begin to see the works of God. We'll begin to notice. The silence will not be so silent in our ears. He is always at work. Sometimes it looks like human activity. But think about it, in Ruth, God was always there. Silently, if you will. He was in the weather changes. He was in the chance events. He was in the schemes of humans. 
He was planning and behind the legal procedures. Even he was there even in biological affairs. You will start to catch glimpses of God holding the remote in our world as we trust in him. The silent sovereign is here just as he was 3,000 years ago. Well, as we look at this subject, there's, there's that tension, right, between human free will on the one hand and God's providential control on the other hand. Uh, both seem to be evident in Scripture. On the one hand, in Psalm 135, for example, the Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. And then on the other hand, you see Boaz, I will take Ruth as my wife to preserve the line of Elimelech. Well, he made a choice there. He exercised free will. What do we do with this? What do we do with this tension? Well, first of all, we don't discuss it today, at least any farther. No, but we, we continue to work that out. And we do it in love and kindness with each other. But as we interact with this subject, the third thing I want to point out is we definitely realize that we are not bystanders to the plan. We are not bystanders to God's plan. Rather, each individual, each one of us, is a part of God's plan. You are not insignificant. You've all heard of the Boeing 747. It's the most well-known wide-body commercial airliner and cargo transportation aircraft sometimes referred to as the queen of the skies or the jumbo jet. This airplane is still famous because it was first the first huge body aircraft ever produced. But a Boeing, a Boeing 747 is made up of roughly 6 million parts. I would think that all of those parts need to be working at least semi-well for that plane to take off smoothly, to have a good flight, and to land safely. Without one or more of these parts working well, things could go bad pretty fast. Each one of us is an important part of God's plan. You are not insignificant in the plan of God. You might be a nut or a bolt, but you're important. Somehow, each of us fits in just right. Now, on the other hand, we're nobodies. We're like Ruth. We're like Boaz. We're not kings and queens. We're not famous politicians or celebrities or multi-billionaires, at least that I know of. We're nobodies. But then again, I think that's who God oftentimes ends up using if you are faithful to him. You, as a man or a woman of God, are not insignificant in the plan of God. You have a purpose. You are important. Like it or not, you are not a bystander to God's plan. So let me challenge you. Your choices, just like Boaz, just like Ruth, in the everyday affairs of life, your choices make a difference. Because you are not an in, or because you are a significant part of God's plan, your choices may be more impactful than you know. Boaz and Ruth 
They had no idea where this story was going. They were simply living rightly, making daily choices out of selflessness, out of love and faithfulness, out of loyalty. By faith, they lived devoted lives, and God rewarded them both in their lifetime and beyond their lifetime. So what are you doing in your time? What am I doing in the days that God has given me to live? Daniel Block says this about the author of Ruth. Listen to this. The author of Ruth is keenly aware that in the providence of God, the implications of a person's covenantal fidelity, that is, the implications of a person's loyal faithfulness, often extend far beyond the immediate story. One more time, the author of Ruth is keenly aware that in the providence of God, the implications of a person's covenantal fidelity, their loyal faithfulness, often extend far beyond the immediate story. Our choices extend far beyond what we see. So the challenge then is to choose faithfulness. To your God, in your relationships, choose to trust the silent sovereign. And remember, God rewards those who turn to him and who humbly seek him. Join me in prayer, would you, as Andrew and the team come for a closing song. Father, thank you for your plan that, at least for me, is hard to, it's hard to put on the front burner. It's hard to put it in front of me and let that be my motivating passion for daily life. Sometimes we don't see it. We see all the other stuff, a lot of times the negative stuff, that it's all in that plan. It's all part of it. I pray, God, that we would, for one, that we would choose faithfulness, that each one here, that each one studying this passage would choose faithfulness. Today, tomorrow, every day that you give us. And then... God, that you would give us the strength for that and that we would trust that regardless what the world looks like, regardless what things happen and come down around us, that you're in control. Never have you let go. Never are things slipping through your fingers. I'm so grateful for that. It gives a lot of hope, a lot of security and assurance. Thank you, God, for being with us. Bless us now as we go from this place in Jesus' name. 